Good evening. Thank you for coming tonight. Take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It's always an interesting experience to stand and look out over the congregation. You see some people that look like they're asleep, some people that look like they're mad, and some are just, bless me if you can. Hebrews chapter number one. It is such a rich book. I fear that I will not be able to do it justice, but we will do our best. Hebrews chapter one, verse number one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of the book of Hebrews returns again and again to the word better, which is found some 13 times in this book to show the superiority of Jesus to every other religious system in the world. Warren Warnsby wrote, Christ is better than the angels. He brought in a better hope because he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. When we consider the authorship of this book, this letter, we must first observe that the answer is not stated explicitly in the letter itself. We have no definitive declaration of who the author of this letter is. In the King James Version, the heading of the book says, the epistle of Paul, the apostle, to the Hebrews. Others hold that someone else wrote the letter. Some say Barnabas, some say Apollo, and even Aquila. Now that would be a novel approach, wouldn't it? If a woman had written this book, it is a very elegant letter. But it should be noted that Paul began every one of his letters by identifying himself in the greeting, for example, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints at Corinth. His usual greeting was, grace and peace be unto you. This letter has neither of those two things. So who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? In the end, we do not know, and we are forced to agree with the ancient scholar Origen who concluded who wrote the epistle is known to God alone. Also of importance is to understand who the recipients of this letter are. It is thought that this letter was written to a group of Christians who had come out of Judaism to follow Jesus Christ. They are encountering difficulty and persecution perhaps similar to what Muslims today face when they become a follower of Christ. Because of these difficulties, perhaps some of them 
seemed to be about to give up on the faith. This is a group who at a standstill spiritually and in danger of going backwards. They are exhorted to take stock of what Jesus has to offer and not to give in to fear or doubt and to stay the course. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. First of all, you're going to find a little bit of difference between the outline you have that you got this morning and what's on the screen perhaps because <clears throat> I have to try to get the outline done ahead of time enough uh, to get it printed off on Sunday morning and sometimes I have additional information by the time I get through with it such is the case today. First of all, God spoke. Perhaps the most important thought to understand in our time is simply that God spoke. We live in a time of relativism as many as 70% of Americans believe that there are no absolutes whether one is talking about truth or morality. And the price we pay for that is not only truth, the loss of truth, but the loss of hope. Ever since the world began, God has been speaking to human beings at different times and in different ways, sometimes by direct communication, sometimes through dreams and visions, but most of all through the prophets. In biblical times when God's prophets spoke, his people listened. And the reason was simple. When a prophet spoke, the people knew that they were hearing from God. The apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament period, God spoke to his people primarily through the prophets. This self-declosure was periodic and it was partial in nature. It was spread over a period of time, at least 10 centuries, and it was given in a variety of means. The point here is that God's message is no longer spoken through the prophets, but now through God's very own Son. The prophets were merely instruments in the hand of God, but Jesus was the visible presence of an invisible God. Formerly, the revelation of God was fragmentary, and now it is complete. Formerly, it was partial, but now it is perfect. Formerly, it was preparatory, now it is fulfilled. God did not entrust his full revelation to be given by man. He took the initiative to declare it himself through his son. Then it speaks about the final days. When he speaks of in these last days, it is not speaking of end times. It's not speaking of the second coming of Christ. He is drawing a contrast between how God in the past spoke through the prophets and God has now spoken fully and completely through his son. No further revelation is necessary. Then final message. Since the days of Jesus, there have been others who have come along claiming that they have the final message from God. 
600 years after Jesus was born, an Arabian man named Muhammad claimed to have received a final message from God that he wrote down in what is now the Quran. He claimed that his revelation superseded that of Jesus, who he considered a great prophet. In 1830, a man by the name of Joseph Smith claimed to have received a more final revelation from God. It is called the Book of Mormon. But the truth is that Jesus is the final word of God. There is a warning in the last page of the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, concerning anyone who sought to add to or detract from the Bible. As John MacArthur points out in his commentary, every religion is but man's attempt to discover God. Christianity is God bursting into man's world and showing and telling man what he is like. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives his readers seven good reasons that Jesus is better than the prophets. The number seven seems deliberate, for seven is the biblical number of perfection or completion. And it is certain that that is the writer's point, that Christ is the completion of God's revelation concerning himself. Now, let's pick back up in verse number two. Second part of verse 2, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, and who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The first of those seven good reasons is that he is the heir of, of all things. Since Christ is the Son, and even more particularly the only Son of God, He is also the heir, the sole heir of all things. From the deepest oceans to the highest mountains to the darkest corners of the globe that we call home, He owns it all. In fact, He is not limited to this world. He is the heir of the furthest stars. He owns it all. But sometimes something more is implied here. In addition to his natural inheritance as the creator, we are his inheritance. That's such a mind-boggling truth if you really think about it. You are his treasure. The truth was so profound that the Apostle Paul prayed that the church would have its eyes open <clears throat> to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. Paul <clears throat> was praying <clears throat> that his readers would be able to grasp the truth that they are Christ's inheritance. We are the Father's gift to his Son. You are his treasure. He is the heir of all things. And secondly, he is the creator of all things, through whom he also made the world. The Apostle Paul says of Christ in relation to creation in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Paul explains that all the things that are <clears throat> made were not only made by him, but they are made for him. John says in John 1, 3, all things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The apostle Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And to the church at Rome he wrote, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Interestingly, it says in Hebrews, he made the worlds. The word translated world here is not the normal Greek word, cosmos, but rather another word that means the ages. Jesus not only made the universe, he brought space and time and matter into existence. Jesus is he who was before history, at the beginning of history, and will be at the end of history. He is not only the creator of the universe, but he is the sustainer of the universe. There used to be this thought in 18th century called deism, which was God put everything into motion and then he left. He left the world to operate on its own, sometimes called the clockwork God. The writer says that Jesus upholds all things through his word. And it's a particular phraseology for the word. It is the word rima. It means the spoken word. John began his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only did Jesus speak everything into existence by his spoken word, but he also upholds or sustains all things by that same powerful word. <coughs> John MacArthur points this out. <clears throat> Consider what, an, what instant destruction would happen if the earth rotation slowed down just a little bit. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If we were any closer to it, we would burn up. If we were any further away, we would freeze. Our globe is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons. If it were not so tilted, vapors from the ocean would move north and south and would develop into monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not retain its place, we also would be devastated by the effects thereof. I've lost a page, folks. 
we're in bad trouble. There it is. Fear not. <coughs> if the atmosphere did not remain at its present density, but thinned out even a little, many of the meteors which now harmlessly burn up when they hit the atmosphere would constantly bombard us. How does the universe stay in this kind of fantastically delicate balance? Jesus. Well, you can choose what you want to believe, that it is the result of millions of years of evolution, or you can accept what the Bible says, Jesus maintains and sustains the balance of the universe. Not only is he the sustainer of the universe, but he is the radiance of God's glory, who being the brightness of his glory. Now, no mere prophet can make that claim. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As we look at our text, what I is translated in the New King James as brightness is so Sometimes translated as reflection. Others translate it as radiance. Radiance is more accurate. For there is a world of difference between reflection and radiance. The moon reflects the light of the sun. But the sun radiates light because it is the source Jesus is the radiance of God's glory because he is a part of the source. He is one with the Father. The fifth thing is that he is the exact representation of his Father. He is the express image of his person. The word that is translated image there is the word that we get our word character from. It refers to the impression that is made by a die. For example, the image that you see on a coin. The word carries the idea that Jesus is the exact representation of the very substance of God. What we know of the person of God, we know because of Jesus. At the beginning of his gospel, as we said... John said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is the bosom of his father has declared him. The word literally translated there is not declared but exegeted. The goal of every preacher is to exegete or explain the scripture. Jesus exegeted or explained God. Later, when the disciple Philip came and asked Jesus to show him the Father, he replied, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There is not one feature of the character of God that Jesus does not reveal. So we're being told something very important here. The Son of God, Jesus, is the same as God the Father, but they are both unique. They are one in nature, but separate in person. This gets us to the difficult subject of the Trinity. 
there is a heresy called modalism, which was dealt with in history but has made an appearance today in our day in what is called oneness theology. Modalism or oneness theology says that God is one, but he appears in different forms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as needed. It is an attempt to explain away the uniqueness of the person of the Trinity. This is unfortunately believed by some very popular teachers today, such as J.T. Jakes, who's the pastor of the the potter's house. He comes from a background of oneness theology. This, however, is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us there is one God. It also teaches us that God, Father is is God, God the Son is God, and Holy Spirit is God. They are three distinct beings, yet they they possess a unifying oneness. All attempts to explain the Trinity always fall short. It is complex and not that easy to explain. However, I don't have any problem with God being bigger and more complex than human categories can describe. I've come to the grips with the fact that there are things that don't make any sense to me. I remember in high school, Algebra 1. That's as far as I went, by the way, Algebra 1. I had a hard time grasping that a letter in a formula was really a number. No, it's not. It's a letter. Don't even try to explain to me trigonometry or calculus. It wouldn't make any sense. My point being is that just the fact that I don't understand these things doesn't mean that they're any less true. It just means that they are beyond my comprehension. Thus it is with the character of God. Sixth, he is the redeemer of mankind. He himself purged our sins. When Jesus went to the cross, he solved the problem of sin forever. He made the once for all time payment for sin. The apostle Peter said, you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He is not only the redeemer of mankind, he is the ruler of the universe. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The statement that he sat down is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's significant because the right hand of God was the place of honor. Jesus's exaltation to the highest place in heaven after his work on earth was done was not the mark of a new dignity but it was a re-entry into his rightful place. Paul explained in Philippians chapter 2 who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation 
and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So first of all, the significance is the right hand of God. Secondly, the fact that he sat down was significant because Jesus had completed the redemption of mankind. Now he is escorted by the angels to the throne of Almighty God. He sat down at the favored place of the Father with calmness and confidence. The implications of the phrase are staggering. He sat down. Few other statements in the Bible are filled with greater importance. We know a great deal about the temple in Jerusalem, about its furnishings. But fascinatingly there, there are no chairs in the temple. In this billion-dollar building that took 46 years to complete, there are no chairs. There are no chairs because the priest of Israel never sat down. They never sat down because their work was never done. Their work was never done because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It was a stopgap. It was temporary. It was incomplete. And so the priests, priest after priest, course after course, year after year, century after century, with monotonous repetition, would come to the temple and they would function, but they would never sit down. They could never rest for their work was never done. Their task was never completed. But Jesus <clears throat> made the once for all time payment of the penalty for sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us a little later in chapter 10. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And so Jesus offered himself as the once for all time sacrifice for sin. The work was now done and never needed to be repeated. He sat down. That is significant of his triumphant words on the cross. His last words on the cross were what? As revealed in John chapter 19 and verse 30, it says, and Jesus said, it is finished. In the Greek New Testament, it is one word, tetelestai. It means that it is completed. It is finished. I've told the story numerous times, but talking about the scripture in, in Philippians that talks about, 
and the handwriting and the ordinance was against us. It talks of what it's talking about was when you went to court and they found you guilty of a particular crime and you were put in prison, they brought that sheet and nailed it to your door and says, this, this is his crime and this is his punishment. If you were ever, ever able to leave that, they wrote across the surface of that document one word, tetelestai. It is completed. It is finished. None of the angels held such a position of honor in heaven as Jesus. Seated in honor, Jesus remains superior. An understanding of the colossal work of Christ in paying for sin makes the thought that anybody who could ever think they could pay for their own sin with works of righteousness blasphemy. Blasphemy. Complete and utter blasphemy. Seven reasons that Jesus is superior to every other religious system. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his father. He is the redeemer of mankind. And he is the ruler of the universe. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word and the fact that it remains alive and real to us today. That it reminds us of what our Lord and Savior did for us. That he did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid for our sin because he had no sin of his own. He could vicariously take our sin, be our substitute. There he paid for sin for all time. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his willingness to go to the cross. And thank you, Lord, for your willingness to allow him to do that, to pay for our sin. Help us to live with the certainty that we are your treasure. Whatever people may think of us in this world doesn't matter because to you, we are a treasure. Thank you, Lord, for these people and their willingness and faithfulness to come out tonight. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have an offering, the plate is here in the front. And with that, you're